Jeremiah chapter 5. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles available at the door, and it's a lot easier if you are able to follow this through. Jeremiah, as many of you will know, is a book by or about, to some extent, a young man who is a prophet, um, who spent around 40 years being a prophet, proclaiming God's Word in a corrupt society with a corrupt church, with a corrupt government, corrupt priests, and false prophets. He had a tough call. And it's a book that when a lot of people read it, they think it's really depressing, so much so that if I say to people, well, we're doing Jeremiah for the next three weeks, people go, oh, no, give us something cheerful. Um, but this is God's Word to us, and I hope that you will benefit from hearing God's Word, because it's extraordinarily direct and contemporary. Let's read, first of all, verses 1 to 6. And there's, we're going to look at different questions that are asked in this passage. There are five different questions, and we're going to look at these five briefly and apply them to ourselves. The first is found in verses 1 to 6. God tells Jeremiah, go up and down the streets of Jerusalem. We're at chapter 5, sorry. Chapter 5. Jeremiah 5, verses 1 to 6. Go up and down the streets of Jerusalem, look around and consider, search through her squares if you can Fine, but one person who deals honestly and seeks the truth, I will forgive this city. Although they say, as surely as the Lord lives, still they are swearing falsely. O Lord, do not your eyes look for truth. You struck them, but they felt no pain. You crushed them, but they refused correction. They made their faces harder than stone and refused to repent. I thought, these are only the poor. They are foolish, for they do not know the way of the Lord, the requirements of their God. So I will go to the leaders and speak to them. Surely they know the way of the Lord, the requirements of their God. But with one accord, they too had broken off the yoke and torn off the bonds. Therefore, a lion from the forest will attack them. A wolf from the desert will ravage them. A leopard will lie in wait near their towns to tear to pieces any who venture out. For their rebellion is great and their backslidings many. The question is simply, where is the truthful person? Where is the truth? Where is the honest person? Search through the city and see if you can find one person who is honest. In the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, God told Lot that if he found ten people who were honest, he wouldn't destroy the city. Here, it's about Jerusalem, God's people, God's city, and God says to Jeremiah, wander through the city and see if you can find one honest person. There's a story in the year 400 BC of a man in Athens called Diogenes, who was a philosopher, and to make his point, he went through Athens. He lit a torch, a kind of burning coal thing, a brazier thing, and he lit it in broad daylight in Athens in the sunshine, and he wandered through Athens waving this torch saying that he was looking for one honest person. I think we live in a culture which is profoundly deceitful. Um, I, it, it is somewhat strange that the press make a great fuss about dishonest politicians when the press are very often dishonest themselves. 
that we ourselves very often live lies of deceit. And you have to think about it. If God was to come in here and if Jesus was to come in here and wander around and say, let me find an honest woman or an honest man, how honest, real are we? We live in a society where you kind of have propaganda and spin and a real contempt for justice because it's all about power and control. Can we find one person who is good? I know that you, you, you get people who say, well, it's what, if, if you're talking about a politician, you'd say it's what the politician's policies are. It's not what kind of character they have. But actually, it's very, that is very, very important. It's who we are as a woman or a man, who we are as a boy or a girl that has the most profound impact. What is the value of a person? What is your value? How does society measure somebody's value? Personal wealth, social status, rank. Um, I, I've grown up in a Scottish democratic culture, so when someone says they're Lord so-and-so or Prince so-and-so or King so-and-so, it, it doesn't really wash all that much with me. But nonetheless, I recognize that our social status, where we live, the clubs we belong to. That can be very important for a lot of people. I love Robert Burns, Rabbi Burns. is there for honest poverty that hangs his head and all that. The coward slave, we pass him by. We dare be poor for all that. For all that and all that, our toils obscure and all that. The rank is but the guinea stamp, the man's the goad for all that. And what Burns in that poem was just simply saying is, we're all human. We're all human. Your value is not in your status. Value, perhaps, in your intellect. You're a brilliant scholar or a brilliant, successful scientist. You pass all your exams. You get first-class honors. Is that your value, and is that your worth? No. What the Lord looks for is this. The Lord looks for truth. The Lord looks for reality. The Lord looks for someone who is a lover of truth and sincerity and reality, someone who does the truth as well as knows it. Verse 2 speaks about the false religious person, the person who says, as surely as the Lord lives. They're swearing by God. They're using religious language. They're talking about God. But they're swearing falsely, he says. Jeremiah is really heartbroken by this. Look at verse 3. O Lord, do not your eyes look for truth. You struck them but they felt no pain. We might like to be in a situation, you and I might like to be in a situation where we feel no pain. But that's a terrible situation to be in. It's an awful disease to have if you can feel no pain. You are in enormous danger. You could put your fire, hand in a fire and feel no pain. You could cut yourself with glass and feel no pain, and you would die. But spiritually, there are so many of us who God speaks to and sometimes speaks to us in our suffering, but we feel no pain. Look what they did. You crushed them, but they refused correction. They made their faces harder than stone. This is my 25th year of being a minister, and I think probably the most heartbreaking, most destroying thing 
that I've ever experienced as watching several people actually like this, men and women, who have been lovely Christians, who seem very much to have been committed to Christ, but they begin to stray away, they begin to wander away, and usually it's just bit by bit by bit. And initially, when I was a very young minister, I was a bit scared of what, what was I seeing right? Maybe I got it all wrong, so I was scared of my, that I would have got it wrong and watched sometimes people drift. And then later on, as you get more experience, you realize what's happening and you talk to people and, and they don't want to hear. They don't want to know. And even when things go really, really badly wrong, they make their faces harder than stone a hard-hearted person, a hard-faced person. It's such a dreadful thing. I remember a, a lovely, lovely Christian lady whose face shone with the beauty of Jesus Christ. But in her life, she had been violently sexually abused. She had experienced so much suffering and so much sorrow. And yet there was softness and there was warmth and there was love because, not because she was stupid, not because she hadn't felt the pain, not because she didn't feel it, but because she was following Christ, and Christ changes us from the inside. I've seen it that way, but I've also seen it the other way, that people who were gentle and people who were open-hearted and people who were open-minded, who are open to Christ and, and who love Christ, and yet, for some reason, they make shipwreck of their faith. Maybe they just love money. Demas, having loved this world, has forsaken me, says Paul. Maybe sometimes they just get so lonely and, and an inappropriate relationship. Maybe just something deep within them comes to the surface in terms of, of and they indulge it in terms of sin, and they indulge it, and just, they, they just become hard. And that's what Jeremiah saw. He's, he's Lord, you're looking for truth, and I wandered through this city, and what, as I looked at people's faces, what did I see? I saw that they were as hard as stone. There's a great loss in hardening yourself against God's Word. Now, I, I do want to say this to you, and please, please, please listen to this. We are brilliant. I am brilliant at justifying myself. I am brilliant at a thousand and one excuses for my sin. When I was uh, at secondary school, I was in a language class for French and for German. The only reason I was there was I didn't like science, and uh, it seemed a bit easier, and that class was full of all the girls. That honestly is the only reason I took that class. And I wasn't very good at homework. In fact, I didn't do much homework. And I prided myself on being able to come in every day with a different excuse for not having done my homework. Yes, miss, the um, cat ate it. You know, I, I was running along and it fell into a ditch. You know, there's a hundred, I, I could do that. We are like that with our sin, that we become a little bit convicted of sin, a little bit uncomfortable, just a little bit, oh, and we say, ah, but, and we tell God why we did it, or we tell ourselves, usually we justify ourselves to ourselves, and we harden ourselves against God's word. It sometimes can be really uncomfortable and really difficult when God speaks to you from His Word and shows you things that make you go, ouch. What's worse 
is if you refuse to listen and God doesn't speak to you. We need to be watchful that we don't harden ourselves against the word of the Lord. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. See, you have to learn to trust God enough that when He says a hard word, when He says a difficult word, when He says something that makes us uncomfortable, it is not because He hates us, it is because He loves us. And so God, Jeremiah, he wanders and he, he goes to the poor and he says, the poor don't know. He goes to the rulers. The rulers don't do it. They don't execute judgment. Now, in each of these questions, I want to just simply answer them as reflects Christ. Where can we find truth? Where can we find an honest man? We only attain the truth in Christ. Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus never lied. Jesus never pretended. Jesus never manipulated. Jesus never deceived anybody. Every single person you know will at some point in your life let you down. And all of us will at some point deceive other people. But the one person who is absolutely 100% and totally trustworthy is Jesus Christ. And you have to hold on to that. The righteous person saves the city, says Jeremiah. But the enemies come in. Verse 6 about the lions and the wolves and the leopards. That's just referring to all Israel's enemies who would come in and destroy. I think we live in a culture which is profoundly dishonest. Profoundly dishonest. I said to myself, said the prophet, all men are liars. And I think that that is the culture that we live in, and we very easily adapt to that culture. But we remember, O Lord, do not your eyes look for truth. We remember the one who is truth, and it is better to be true and to be real and to follow Jesus in the midst of a deceitful culture than to accommodate ourselves to the culture by, by lying and being deceitful ourselves. Let's read verses 7 to 13 for the next question, and it's right at the beginning. God asks, why should I forgive you? Your children have forsaken me and sworn by gods that are not gods. I supplied all their needs, yet they committed adultery and thronged to the houses of prostitutes. They're well-fed, lusty stallions, each neighing for another man's wife. Should I not punish them for this, declares the Lord? Should I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? Go through her vineyards and ravage them, but do not destroy them completely. Strip off her branches, for these people do not belong to the Lord. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have been utterly unfaithful to me, declares the Lord. They've lied about the Lord. They said, He will do nothing. No harm will come to us. We'll never see sword or famine. The prophets are but wind, and the word is not in them. So let what they say be done to them. Why should I forgive you, says God? God has to judge. Verse 9, should I not punish them for this? Why should I forgive you? That's a great question. What would you say to God in answer to that question? When God asks you, why should I forgive you? The example that's used, he talks about how Israel just both spiritually, physically, and in every other way turns away from God and is adulterous in every way but particularly in verse 12. If you notice verse 12, he talks about the prophets and the religious teachers and the priests, and he says, they lie about the Lord. 
They think he will do nothing. Now, this is absolutely the state of the church in our nation today. They don't take God's anger seriously, and they don't take God's word seriously, and they lie about the Lord. Calvin says this on this passage, they who imagine that God remains quiet in heaven and enjoys his leisure and rest, though they may not in words deny God, yet treat him mockingly. There is in them at the same time no religion and no thought of a divine being. There's a God up there. There's a God who doesn't care. There's a God who's not directly and really involved. And religious people and the churches and many people who say that they are Christians or teaching the Bible actually teach this. They teach it. They teach that God loves you, but he's not bothered about what you do. But God comes to me and he comes to you and he says, actually, it's because I do care that I am angry. Why should I forgive you? Why should I forgive you? What have you done? You look through the prophets, you think of the injustice and the wrong. You say, well, I haven't committed any injustice, really. Have you not? You live in an unjust world. You're part of an unjust system. You go along with that. You may not have gone out and murdered somebody. You may not be directly stealing. But you live in a society and in a culture in which that that goes on in so many different ways. Well, it's not my fault that almost... 900 million people in the world don't have clean water and are starving. It's not my fault. We live in a world which has an abundance of things, and yet it's an unjust world, and we are part of that. Why should I forgive you, says God? Well, I'll tell you what my answer would be to that question. We come back again to Jesus Christ. I know of no reason for God to forgive me whatsoever. Not the God of the Bible not because of my own actions. The Bible puts it beautifully. All my righteousness is like filthy rags. So I don't have an answer to that question except this. You forgive me because your son asked you to. Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. You forgive me because I'm taking all my acts, my good acts, my bad acts, everything all that I am, all that I do, that's stained with the sin and the pollution of my own heart and the sin and the pollution of the world that I live in, and I take it, and I take these robes, as the Bible calls them, and I wash them white in the blood of the Lamb. You forgive me because Jesus died for me. You forgive me because my sin has already been punished. Why should you forgive me? Because you promised that you will. Why should you forgive me? Because you've provided a means of forgiveness. Because you asked if there was an honest man, and yes, there is, in Jesus Christ. And you asked about sin being punished, yes. And you yourself, you so loved me that you gave your only begotten Son that I would not perish, but I would receive eternal life. Verses 14 to 19, we read on. Therefore, this is what the Lord God Almighty said says, because the people have spoken these words, I will make my words in your mouth a fire, and these people the wood it consumes. O house of Israel, declares the Lord, I'm bringing a distant nation against you, an ancient and enduring nation, a people whose language you do not know, whose speech you do not understand. Their quivers are like an open grave. All of them are mighty warriors. 
They will devour your harvests and food, devour your sons and daughters. They will devour your flocks and herds, devour your vines and fig trees. With the sword, they will destroy the fortified cities in which you trust. Yet even in those days, declares the Lord, I will not destroy you completely. And when the people ask, why has the Lord our God done all this to us? You will tell them, as you have forsaken me and served foreign gods in your own land, so now you will serve foreigners in a land not your own. God's Word. Why has God done this? God's Word is a fire that consumes. And what that means is this. God's Word comes and burns away all the lies, all the hypocrisy, all the pretense, all the excuses, all the false idols that you comfort yourself with. And God's Word comes and it pierces into your very soul. It exposes your very being. It doesn't let you away with any excuse or with any false religion. It's living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. And why does God do this? Why does God allow these things to happen? Well, in verse 18, I will not destroy you completely. He doesn't do it in order to destroy it. He does it in order to wake us up. Chastening, the old language calls, those whom the Lord loves, He chastens, He corrects. C.S. Lewis, in just one of his many, many wise sayings, said this, God whispers to us in our pleasures and screams to us in our pains. Why did you do this, God? Why are you saying this? Why have you allowed this to happen? So that we may turn to Jesus Christ, because ultimately, nothing else really matters. And you know, it's a strange thing. If you're a Christian and you begin to wander away from God, you know what I would pray for you? I would pray that God would destroy your body so that your spirit may be saved. That's one of, as was said, Paul, uh, concerning a situation in a New Testament church. Now, maybe I wouldn't pray like that, but what I would pray is, Lord, whatever happens, don't let anyone turn away from you. I was thinking about this and thinking about someone who wasn't a Christian and again, it was in my younger days when I was less mild and wise as I am just now. And there was a couple came to the church in Brora. And they, well, actually, they didn't come to the church. They came to a supper evening that we had. Great supper evening, you know, crab and salmon and just supper evening to die for. So they knew they were going to be preached at, but they thought we can cope with that because um, in Easter Ross or Sutherland parlance, the crack is good and the food is brilliant, and we can cope with the minister rabbiting on about the Bible for a while. Anyway, I sat beside them, and we began talking, explaining why they didn't believe, and so on, and um, why they didn't come to church, and uh, I said to them, what if your house burns down? And they said, what? And I said, "Um," they were fisher people, and I said, if I put a curse on your house if you don't come to church, and come, what, what what then? And they really freaked out. I was joking, but they really took me really, really seriously. And I actually thought about it. They actually turned up in church the next Sunday. It was a very good method of event. And they were converted, both of them. The woman first. She was the one most hard, but she was the one who was converted first. And the man, uh, he's now actually an elder in the church. But uh, it it was fantastic to see that. But actually, in a sense, they got it right. I would rather 
you know, for my own children, for people I love the most. What do I want more than anything else? I want them to know Jesus Christ. I want them to have good health. I want them to have good marriages. I want them to, to get on well at school and so on. But I don't care as much about that as I care about whether they know Jesus. And that's what's really being said here. Why, God, why did this happen? Why did you allow this to happen? Because you've rebelled against me, and I didn't want to destroy you completely, and I wanted to bring you back. And so verse 20 Next question, we continue to read. Announce this to the house of Jacob. Proclaim it in Judah. Hear this, you foolish and senseless people who have eyes but do not see, who have ears but do not hear. Should you not fear me, declares the Lord? Should you not tremble in my presence? I made the sand a boundary for the sea, an everlasting barrier it cannot cross. The waves may roll, but they cannot prevail. They may roar, but they cannot cross it. But these people have stubborn and rebellious hearts. They've turned aside and gone away. They do not say to themselves, let us fear the Lord our God who gives autumn and spring rains in season, who assures us of the regular weeks of harvest. Your wrongdoings have kept these away. Your sins have deprived you of good. Among my people are wicked men who lie in wait like men who snare birds and like those who set traps to catch men, like cages full of birds. Their houses are full of deceit. They have become rich and powerful and have grown fat and sleek. Their evil deeds have no limit. They do not plead the case of the fatherless to win it. They do not defend the rights of the poor. Should I not punish them for this, declares the Lord? Should I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? There's a lot in that, but let me just say very briefly what's being said here about God's people. They don't take God's creation seriously, and there is a lack of gratitude for basic provision. Now, the, the, the key thing here is where he talks about, I made the sand a boundary for the sea. And what that is saying is this, is the Creator gives structure and form to the universe. In the New Testament, we're told that it's in God we live and move and have our being, and we're told in Colossians that it's in Christ that everything is held together. What if God withdrew His laws the laws of nature are not nature. The laws are the laws that God has put there. What if He withdrew His laws? Well, that's what's been said has happened here. Your wrongdoings have kept these away. Normally, the law of nature, there's autumn and spring rains in season, there's regular weeks of harvest, but you have sinned, and because you have ignored God, what God has done is He's messed up the creation in that sense. He's letting you see what happens when you cross that boundary. We cross the moral boundaries. What if God withdraws the natural boundaries? Now, I'm not somebody who generally would go and say, there's a flood in Brisbane because people in Brisbane are more sinful than others. But I do think it is important for us to realize when we hear of all different floods and all the different things occurring, our world is a very fragile place. If you're not a Christian, you actually believe that at any time a meteor could come and hit the earth and destroy it. A Christian doesn't believe that because we believe that God is in control. But what if God withdraws His hand? Nature is not in rebellion. Man is in rebellion. I don't want to get into the whole question of global warming, but I want to use it as an illustration. In our culture, many people believe that human being activity changes the climate. I want to suggest that there's a spiritual version of this, that the activity of human beings on earth change the climate 
in the sense of the spiritual climate and that affects the physical and everything else. C.S. Lewis has a poem which goes like this, part of it anyway. Lead us, evolution, lead us up the future's endless stair. Chop us, change us, prod us, weed us, for stagnation is despair. Groping, guessing, yet progressing. Lead us, nobody knows where. Nobody knows where. If we are being guided, and, and the way that people speak about nature as though nature, she is a personal being. Nature is not personal. God is personal. There are laws of nature, but they are God's laws. And the question is, should you not fear God? Our politicians, many of them at least, try to instill a fear. Whether it's right or wrong, I'm not going to say, but they certainly try to instill a fear of, look what's going to happen with climate change. Look what you are doing. God actually says, this is way, way more serious. Look what you are doing to the world that I created. Look at what you're doing morally and spiritually. It leads us to injustice. Verse 28, they do not plead the case of the fatherless to win it. They do not defend the rights of the poor. We don't. Should you not fear God? It's God's creation. It's God's world. It's God's humanity. It's God's people. And we're just so obsessed with ourselves. Should you not fear God? The answer is yes. But then think about Christ in this respect as well. Christ controls the wind and the waves. The raging waves that we sang of in Psalm 124. The disciples, when that happened, when Jesus was in a storm and asleep in the boat, and this huge storm came that even scared these fishermen who were used to sailing. When Jesus calmed the storm, they didn't go, hey, that's cool. They were terrified. Who is this who controls even the wind and the waves? Should you not fear God? Absolutely. But here's the thing for the Christian. It is an awesome fear. It is fear in the presence of beauty. It's a sense which it's so stunning that when you stand up to sing his praise, you can hardly stand up. It's so amazing that you can hardly open your mouth. You are almost struck dumb. It is not the fear of God which causes you to curl up in a ball and call for the rocks to fall on you. It is the fear of God which says, Lord, you are an awesome God, an awesome God. The whole creation is yours. And we, we, we're, we're like King Canutes thinking we can turn back the tide. We think we can control nature. No, we can't. We can control nature but we can answer to God for whether we fear Him and whether we acknowledge His control. And then just the last two verses to finish, verse 30 and 31. A horrible and shocking thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy lies. The priests rule by their own authority. And my people love it this way. But what will you do in the end? That's the question. What will you do in the end? 2 Timothy 3 verses 1 to 5, we're told that in, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, 
not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with him. The prophets prophesy lies, the priests rule by their own authority, and my people love it this way. God says, my people love it when a somebody stands up in my name and tells lies. And they love it when a priest rules by their own authority, when religious leaders talk about their authority, not my authority. And he said, it's all junk because the question is, what will you do in the end? In the end, listening to lies doesn't help you. In the end, following authoritarian religions doesn't help you. Following a, a man doesn't help you. What will you do in the end? Deuteronomy thirty-two twenty-nine. If only they were wise, would understand this and discern what their end will be. Or Isaiah 10, verse 3, what will you do on the day of reckoning when disaster comes from afar? To whom will you run for help? Where will you leave your riches? What will you do in the end? If, that's one, if there's one of these five questions that I want you to think about, it's this one. What will you do at the end? What if your end was tomorrow? Or your end might be in 50 years' time. What will you do in the end? I will tell you what I will do. I hope, anyway. I'll tell you, as I understand it, right now, what I, I, in all my heart, I hope and pray that at the end I will say this. I want to be able to say, I've run the race, I've finished the course, I've kept the faith. But I think most of all, I will stand at the end and I will say, I have nothing Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Lord, it doesn't matter that I was a minister in St. Peter's. It doesn't matter that I wrote a book. It doesn't matter all the different things that I did. None of this lets me into heaven. None of this justifies my life. All I've got is you. I've got nothing. Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and in the end, I will stand on the earth. And many people understand that, and I understand it. As uh, a Garth Hewitt song once said, I will dance on my own grave. May you live to dance on your own grave. Job said, I know that my Redeemer lives, and, and in the end, I, it's either I or he will stand on the earth, and I will stand with him. What will you do in the end? You're really, really going to stand before God at the end and say, I made a lot of money. I worked hard at the office. I did some things for charity. I was a faithful member of the church. I had a pretty good life, some good things, some bad things. No. What will you do in the end? Because all that you can put at the end to justify yourself before God will become an infinitesimal speck when God shows you what Jesus did on the cross. And you want to say that what Christ did on the cross, that somehow that little speck of what you did and what you are is more important. What will you do at the end? I, 
the more I go on in this life, the more I, I try and serve God as a Christian, the more things I see which cause me to be disturbed and so many other things, the more I am so, so thankful for the gospel, that it is not about me, that it is about Jesus Christ, that it is not about you, that it is about Jesus Christ. And you know what that does? That doesn't make you into some kind of Christian zombie who has no interest in life. What it does is it releases you enormously. It releases you emotionally. It releases you in so many different ways. In the end, I stand and I say, it's him. I trust him. I trust what he did. I believe what you said. That's what I'm going to do in the end. That will be my plea. Okay? Where are you? What's yours? Don't muck around with religion. Don't play around with God. God is looking for an honest man. God is looking for an honest woman. God's not wanting someone who's deceitful and refuses to listen to his word, who calls out his name, but does not feel the pain and makes their faces harder than stone. He doesn't want someone whose rebellion is great and whose backsliding is many and someone who ignores God's word, someone who, who deceives themselves and hurts others. He doesn't want people who love falsehood and false religion. He wants people who love him. He wants people who love Jesus. As I said, the more I go on, the more I find myself despairing at so many things in the world. But underneath, there is just, for me, there is this just incredible sense of, of joy and anticipation that no pain and no sorrow can take away because Christ has done it. He's done it. And we're going to sing just now a song when I survey. And please, the words of this are so beautiful, but they, they sum up, I think, I hope, our response to God's Word. Let's sing these words, and then, um, well, let me pray first of all, and then we'll sing as our response. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word, and we understand the frustration a little bit, the frustration of Jeremiah, and we understand just a little bit, the anger that your own people, there wasn't one honest person, that your own people listened to lies and loved it that way, that your own people were unjust and did not help the poor, that your own people did not acknowledge your creation. Lord, we're there. We're, we're no better than the people of Israel those hundreds and thousands of years ago. Forgive us. What will we do in the end? Oh, Lord, may it be that we see the beauty and the glory and the perfection and the excellence and the magnificence of Jesus Christ, and that as we survey your wondrous cross, that our richest gain, we just count it but loss in comparison with the excellency of knowing you. And I pray that every one of us here would know you, that if anyone's not a Christian, that they would just commit their life to you, and that those of us who are Christians, that we would bow before you as we sing these words in repentance. Lord, we want to feel. 
We want to hear your voice. Even if sometimes it's a hard word, we know that it's a word of great, great, deep, passionate, committed love to us. We want to hear you speak. We want to know your life in our midst. We want to see our friends and family and and many others coming to know you. And if there is anything in us that is hindering that, grant, O Lord, that your word would be like a consuming fire and burn it away from us. For we ask it in your name. Amen.